Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Roth. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. Over the last couple of weeks, I've mentioned on the Friday follow-up episodes that as we continue to look deeper into the case and really take a step back and kind of look at the 30,000-foot view of what happened on September 17, 2006 at the Friedley Residence, this case to me is seeming less and less likely that teenagers were involved in this or that these murders were because of some sort of high school drama or boyfriend-girlfriend-type problems. This was an incredibly violent, intentional, and serious attack. Remember, Vicki Friedley was shot in the head with a 40 caliber pistol pressed against her head, against her temple. That demonstrates some extreme violence. John was shot in the chest with a shotgun from what appears to be 10 feet or less away. And then we don't know how Becky was killed, but then her body was lit on fire. I've talked about when I did the profile about what I feel all of this crime scene indicates as far as criminal sophistication. As you guys know, Jim Clementi and I don't necessarily agree on this, but it seems to me that the fires were very carefully and intentionally set in a way that would spread quickly and that would not direct police towards believing that this was a homicide in the house. But then you have Becky burning outside, which obviously tells everyone that it was a homicide. To me, that indicates that something went wrong, that Becky was the interruption, that Becky was the surprise. They had a plan to murder John and Vicky, whoever did this, and they were going to set the house on fire and hope that at the end of the day, Everyone thought that this was a tragic accident. But then Becky comes in and ruins the plan. There's just no other explanation to me for why we have such very different, almost different crime scenes between what happened to John and Becky and what happened to Becky. The police focused in and thought, well, since Becky was treated differently, she must have been the primary target. But I look at it very differently. Becky being burned in that wheelbarrow the way that she was, to me, was someone acting quickly on their feet to try to destroy forensic evidence. She was not part of the plan. That's the way that I see this, and I know that a lot of you disagree and a lot of you agree with me on that. But the level of violence here, to me, indicates something much more adult, for lack of a better term. There's something big going on here. There was a big reason why somebody went up that hill, went onto that property, and murdered this family. So because of that, for these last couple of weeks, we've been focusing on the adults, on John and Vicky. We heard from Vicky's co-workers. We've heard from John's co-workers. 
And as promised in today's episode, I'm going to break down John and Vicky's finances. Now, if you notice this episode maybe doesn't flow perfectly, I don't know how it's going to come out. I have no script for this. I've been spending the last couple of weeks going through all of the financial documents, trying to figure out a way to present it. I feel like I've come up with a way that I can present it in a meaningful way to you, but it's not going to be a narrative or a story. I'm just going to break down some data for you. So after a quick break, first, I want to talk a little bit about the case in general. Then we're going to get into the finances. This is season 12, episode 36, The Books. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications. And that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Before I get into the finances, I I thought after we recorded this week's follow-up, there was a couple things, one in particular, that I had intended to address in the follow-up, but the question didn't come up because it wasn't posed in the follow-up thread. But I think that it's worth talking about just for a couple of minutes. So someone named Wes, a listener, posted on the fan page or commented on the fan page that he didn't understand, even after hearing the why episode, Why I picked this case, the term that he used for it was that this case is murky, very murky, he said. And he kind of gave that quick snapshot look, kind of the talking points of the state in this. He said, this is a case where you have a guy and his buddy who were supposed to go up and go hiking in the desert with Becky. Becky's found outside of the house with wheelbarrow tracks leading from the desert. The phone pings show Robert and Christian moving towards the mountain, according to the expert, and their phones have no service during the times of the murders. Add into that the business card found again out in the desert where the hike was supposed to happen that has Christian's DNA and fingerprint on it. And this seems like an open and shut case. And as he put it, it's extremely murky at best. So why pick this case? And my answer to that is, If the case wasn't murky, what we're doing here wouldn't be needed. You have an example of that. Remember when we were getting all the information together for this season, I did a mini season on Pablo Velez. It was only either six or eight episodes, and that's what a case looks like that's not murky. There's no reason to go into a deep dive when you have a case that's so obvious that someone is innocent. We'd just be wasting everyone's time. We just need to wait for the courts to play out. In Pablo's case, he was very obviously innocent. I broke down every element over a series of episodes, but that's the type of case that could be covered on a one one one-hour episode. I could hit the Reader's Digest points of that case in an hour, and you would know that Pablo Velez is innocent. There was another time we did this before we started on the West Memphis 3 case, Season 4, George Powell. Again, the Innocence Project asked me to cover that case for them in the hopes, just like in Pablo Velez's case, that maybe because of our reach, someone who knows something that could finally put the nail in the coffin 
for the appeal could come forward. Uh, but George George Powell's case was the same thing. George Powell was very obviously innocent. I mean, it's ridiculous. You had several witnesses that all said, literally every witness, that it was the short guy that committed this crime. You could see in the video, it's a very small, short guy committing it. And George Powell's six foot three, or I don't remember how tall he is, but very tall guy. It's clearly not him. Again, that case was not murky at all. We covered it over six episodes. We could have covered it in one one hour episode, but we were hoping that we could maybe find someone that would come forward when they heard the podcast. And that's why we did it in order to help the Innocence Project of Texas to hopefully find a witness. That's what it looks like when we have a case that's not murky. That is a very simple, obvious case of actual innocence. But that's not what we do here. We take on cases that are challenging, that are murky, that are difficult, that require a full, detailed investigation to figure out what the hell is happening here. And while those talking points make it sound very simple, let's not forget that it took the state 10 years to make the arrest in this case. 10 years. It's clearly not as obvious as the people that say, look at all this evidence, think it is. I see it all the time. It's the same usual suspects that come in and are like, well, why, why are we ignoring this? We're not ignoring anything. I'm aware of those elements of the case. Obviously, everyone is. But there are several other elements that point towards Robert and Christian's innocence. And let me give you an example of a case that's murky. The case of the murder of Heyman Lee and the wrongful conviction of Anand Syed. That case was murky. Let me give you the talking points of that one in the same way that Wes gave me the talking points for this case. Adnan was witnessed asking Hay for a ride after school. Hay left school and was killed before 3.15 when she was supposed to pick up her cousin. So she was killed during the time when she was driving away from school. Adnan was last seen asking Hay for a ride after school. Adnan's accomplice confessed to the crime. He confessed that Adnan called him and that they met up, that he saw the body. He talked about everywhere where they went in town and talked about where they buried the body, which coincidentally was where Hayes' body was found. He also directed police to Hayes' car, which supposedly no one knew about Hayes' car. Then the cell phone evidence, unlike in this case, where at best what they do is say, they were maybe moving in that direction from 20 miles away, and then there's no service and we don't know where they are. In Adnan's case, the cell phone records match perfectly to Adnan's accomplice, Jay Wilde's testimony. He says every single place they went during that afternoon and evening, the cell phone records confirm every single one of those places, including where the body was buried at the time that Jay says they were burying it. Now, if you want murky, that's murky. That's what happens if you take the state's version of the case, pick out the most compelling evidence, and spit it out as bullet points. Anand Syed sounds guilty as hell. Murky doesn't begin to describe it. Again, his accomplice confessed and gave a story of when and where they went and when they buried the body in a non-cell phone records match every single piece of that including where the body was buried at the time Jay says the body was being buried. And Anand asked Hay for a ride 
and she said she would give him a ride after school. Now, Adnan says that Hay later canceled, but no one witnessed her canceling. All they know is that they had plans to be together when Hay was killed. So do you see the parallels here? So if you're listening to this case right now, and I am certainly not Sarah Koenig, and I'm not going to give you a, a beautifully told, well-scripted, perfectly scored narrative of this whole thing. But if you listened to Serial and Undisclosed in season one of Truth and Justice, and you came to the same conclusion that the state's attorney for Baltimore, Marilyn Mosby, came to, that Anand Syed is in fact actually innocent. And there are far better suspects than him. And they even have DNA that indicates who may have done this. Remember back to the beginning. Remember those talking points. Remember that anyone on Reddit or the same hater groups on Facebook that are talking about me and now Ellen and Rabia and everybody else. These people that just live in the cesspool of negativity. They were saying the same thing. They are still saying the same thing now about Anand Syed's case, despite the fact that the hard work has been done, the deep investigation has been done, we've gone deeply into the woods and have torn apart every single element of the state's case and realized that it was all bullshit. That case is murky, just like this case is murky. So those talking points don't scare me at all. And if at the end of the day we find out that these two guys are guilty, I will certainly tell you that. I think that those of you that have been around for a long time, trust me well enough to know that I'm not going to hide what I think actually happened. I'm here because I believe that these two men are innocent. And I believe they need to get home to their families. And even more so than that, I believe that the person that committed this horrific triple homicide and murdered this family and burned their house down is still walking free. And I believe that if we keep digging and look past the talking points and embrace the murkiness and get in there and do our fucking job, then I think that we can solve it. And that's why we're doing this case. That's what I wanted to say in the follow-up. And we just, we got so busy with everything else. We never got around to it, but let's never be afraid of a case that's murky. We're here for the murky cases. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, now we're going to jump forward and get into our current case, this murky case that we're working. 
We've done a lot with victimology, so much with victimology. We have focused heavily for months on Becky and her friend group, and we've, we've used her cell phone records to track her movements throughout the week. The problem is with John and Vicky is we can't use their cell phones to track their movements because neither of them hardly ever used their cell phones. So in John and Vicky's case, what I figured after, after weeks of going through these financial records, I found a way to use these records to trace John and Vicky's movements to get an idea of what they were up to and look for patterns. So as I began, I started going through, we, we have, we have their, their checking account statements from August of 2005 through the day after they were murdered. The Bank of America, for some reason, their statement dates always run to about the 18th of the month, uh, which is interesting. If, if you bank at Bank of America, maybe that's a normal thing. I don't know. Every bank I've ever had, I, under, I fully understand the concept of a fiscal month not always starting and ending on the 1st. But every bank that I've ever had with a personal checking account, my bank statements go from the 1st to the end of the month. In their case, they run from like the 18th or 19th of the month through the 18th or 19th of the following month. Well, it just so happens their final bank statement, which is pretty convenient actually, ends on the 18th of September. It's the final statement we have. Of course, they were murdered on the 17th of September on a Sunday. So we have 13 months of bank statements to look at. And there's there's a lot of interesting things there. One, I mentioned this uh, probably a month ago, but I, I want to reiterate that you know, when I had originally glanced at them, what I saw in the bank statements was that it was Vicky's name on the account, not John's. And so I was I thought it was just Vicky's bank account. Um, and I was completely wrong about that, uh, fully, fully wrong about it. It is what it appears is that it is Vicky's account. She is the account holder. The statements are are sent to her, whereas my bank statements come to myself and my wife. Both of our names are on the statements. But John is an authorized user on the account. He's a signatory on the account, which means even though it's Vicky's account, she's the owner of the account. John has a debit card. John has a checkbook. His name's on the checks. He can use the account just as though it was his. And I could even be wrong about that. Could be Bank of America does things differently, and they only put the primary account holder on the on the bank statements, uh, even though there's multiple account holders. But what I know is the bank statements come in Vicky's name. But John is actively using the account. John has a, a debit card on the account, and his name's on the checks. Now I'll be posting pretty much all of the documents I have this weekend. I got to go. There's these are tricky because they're financial documents, so I have to do some pretty serious redacting. But I'm gonna try to get all that done and get these up. Uh, but some of the documents I'm working off of, we have bank statements for Becky's savings account, which there's there's nothing really groundbreaking there, but I'll put those up. Uh, we have their credit reports, uh, which again, there's nothing really groundbreaking there. They show some, it looks like at some point Vicky had like a credit card through Macy's. There was a couple things that were like in default, but everything appears to be closed out as far as their, 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 their credit report. So really what we're focusing on is going to be their bank statements for their checking account. That's what they were using on a regular basis. So first, let's start with kind of some big picture bird's eye view stuff. John, as we've mentioned several times before, uses a lot of cash. Oh, excuse me, too. There is another document. Um, we, we have John's receipt book uh, where he wrote his invoices to Rutherford Properties that we heard Ted Rutherford several months ago 
not John's boss, but the primary person that he worked for uh, and did his contracting work for. We have a receipt book where he would write his invoices out, and it goes back to like June, where he would write his invoices out to Rutherford Properties. I do not believe that is all of John's income. Uh, even I re-listened today to Ted Rutherford's interview, and he says that that they probably account for three quarters to two thirds of John's income that he works for them. Uh, and the officer says, Dave Eichelt says, well. As far as I know, you're 100% because his receipt book is all you guys. My assumption is that John was doing other work uh, based on what we see in the uh, in the bank records, that he's doing other work, but he he's only writing out formal receipts for Rutherford Properties because they are a corporation that has to have a receipt in order to write the check. Now, getting back to kind of that big picture view, John is using a lot of cash for something. Uh, every month, he 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 averages between ten and fifteen ATM withdrawals per month, and it's it's usually a thousand dollars worth or more throughout the month. Sometimes multiple withdrawals on the same day. Also, what's interesting is he and Vicky both deposit their checks. They make all their deposits through an ATM. They rarely go into the bank and make a deposit. They're always ATM deposits. And I'm going to get into more detail uh, to end this episode after I give you this kind of the basics of of their account. Uh, I'm going to go through. I took their last three months. As I mentioned, I was trying to figure out a way to present this that will make sense. I took the last three months and put all of their transactions on a calendar so we can see what they were doing on certain days of the week and look for patterns. And some patterns do seem to kind of emerge there. So we'll get into that in just a little bit. But let me give you, I broke down just 2006. So from January 1st, 2006, through the day that they died, September 17th, 2006. During that time, John and Vicky deposited $47,717 into their account. So that's just shy of $50,000 over the first three quarters. So there were still October, November, December to go, and half of September, actually, uh, so at that point, they had deposited, they'd been paid and deposited $47,717. Now, a little bit of help we have here is in the car, in one of the cars, we have a photograph of Vicky's, what's not her last pay stub, but it's actually the last pay stub that she got and deposited. Uh, and, and that pay stub shows us what her year-to-date earnings were at that point. That check was dated September 8th, and it was for the pay period that ended on September 2nd. What we find from that pay stub, we learn that Vicky is paid weekly, and she doesn't bring home much money. So as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, her base pay was $7 an hour plus commission using the year-to-date amounts and averaging those out. It comes to her making around, I think it was $11.84 an hour is her average, but her paychecks are never going to be the same because of the commission. So sometimes she has paychecks with a high commission, sometimes with low commission, but she gets paid every week. By looking at the year-to-date amounts, it looks like she pays her health insurance once a month, like the first check of the month. So there's, um, and of course, I didn't bring the SEB in here with me, and I didn't write it in these notes. So you'll see it on the website, but I think it's like $75 or something like that. But you can tell by the year-to-date amounts that she's not paying that every single check or she would have no money left. It looks like it's like the first check of the month is when 
she pays that out. But there's health insurance, there's dental insurance, she pays a little bit into a 401k. And then there's a section that says authorized deduction, $41.93. I don't know what that is. Uh, I've speculated that maybe there's some kind of a garnishment on her wages. I didn't. I don't see anything in her background check that shows that there was a court order for that to happen. Uh, it could be that maybe she runs a tab at Macy's and it comes out for that. I don't know. But we have that. Uh, and on her September 8th paycheck, the authorized deduction was $41.93. And at that point, year to date, she had paid $730.61 year to date for whatever that authorized deduction was. At the end of the day, her paycheck or take home pay for that paycheck was only $131 and some change. So she didn't bring home a lot. Her average take home was usually somewhere around $200, little less, little over $200 if you average them out. Now, I want to go back to kind of 2006 as an overview so we can kind of track where the money was coming from without me reading to you every single transaction. So like I said, there was a total amount of deposits in 2006 into the account of $47,717. We know from that check stub, it shows the year-to-date amount of her net earnings, which means the the amount that she actually got to take home. And that was $5,565 for the year. So that's all, all the way through September or the beginning of September. That's how much money Vicky had actually made in a check to put into her account. And those were all deposited. It looks like they were all deposited into their Bank of America bank account. So out of the $47,717, $5,565 was from Vicky's work. We also have to kind of subtract out of that as we try to get down to John's number is what we're trying to do. Uh, Vicky got her tax return in April. That was $1,720. So if you take that out as well, That leaves $40,432. Now, there was also about $2,000 just under that money that was transferred from their savings account into the checking account that counts as deposits. So what we're looking at as far as the amount of money that John deposited into the account, it's just over $38,000, close to $39,000 as of the beginning of September. So that's how much he had brought in. So now let's go back to what Tim Rutherford said, excuse me, Ted Rutherford said. He said that he believed they paid John somewhere around sixty or $70,000 a year. Uh, so if you take $70,000 a year and you divide that out by 12, that means that in order to make that, John would have to have an average monthly income from that job of $5,833 a month. So just have that number kind of in the back of your head that that's about what John would have to make each month in order to equal that sixty to $70,000 a year. Now, we're going to break down just the months, the big picture deposits. And the reason I'm doing this is because, as I've said many times before, what we're always looking for is the thing that changed. What we know so far that changed was that Vicky was on vacation for two weeks before the murders. That's different. They were planning to go somewhere during that vacation, and that got canceled. That's different. And out of nowhere, after not having done so in a very long time, Vicky was planning to go visit her daughter Tiffany that weekend. And according to Tiffany, sounded like she was desperate to leave the house, wanted to get out of there, and then ended up canceling. Then we also have John's son, 
that was supposed to visit on Sunday, and that got canceled the day they were murdered. And we're going to get into John's son very soon, probably a little bit this coming week. But those are things that we know changed. There were there was something something wasn't the same during that last week leading up to their lives. The canceled vacation. Vicky wants to get out of there. She's trying to leave, doesn't get to go. Robbie's supposed to come over and he doesn't show up. And then suddenly everybody's dead. Well, what I found looking through the finances is that something did change. I still can't put my finger on exactly what, but something has changed here. And so let me break this down for you. I'm gonna, I'm, what, what I'm tracking here is just the deposits we're looking at because it, basically John and Vicky spend everything they put into their accounts. If they have a good month and put eight grand in their checking account, they spend eight grand that month. And if they only put 2000 in, they spend more than that uh, because, or they'll spend it all and then not pay some bills, but they're big spenders, but we don't know where they're spending it because so much comes out in cash. And we'll get into those details when I break down the, the calendars of those last three months, but big picture for the year in 2006, in the month of January, the couple deposited $6,246. Now, what I've done here is I've taken, instead of going through every single transaction, I took everything Vicky made and divided it and averaged it. And that comes to Vicky depositing from her paychecks around $680 a month. Just know that's a, that's an average so I could quickly calculate these things out. Because what I'm trying to do is say, like in January, they made $6,246 worth of deposits. If you take away $680 that Vicky would have deposited, that leaves you with John's deposit from his work of $5,566. Just want you to know, you can go through and look at these documents, and maybe that month it's $5,420, or maybe it's $5,960. These are based on averages. So in January, there was total deposits of $6,246. And based on our approximations, which I promised the last time I'm going to say that, I'm just clarifying these are not exact numbers. John deposited from his work approximately $5,566 in January. Which again, remember, to make $70,000 a year, he would need to deposit around $5,800. So he's right on track there. In February, there were $6,152 deposited. That should be about $5,472 for John. In March, they had 7,528 deposited. When we look through the statements, we see that 500 of those deposits was a transfer from their savings. So here's thing one. They used to have a savings account. They transferred $500 in from savings in March, and that leaves John's deposits from work at about $6,348. Then we have April, total of $6,458 minus the 1720 tax return, uh, $1,720 tax return of Vicky's, and that leaves John's deposits at $4,058. Then in May, we have $8,241 deposited, but 1,400 of that were transfers from savings again. So in those couple of months, they transferred in almost $2,000 from their savings account. That leaves John's deposits from work at $6,161. And then the next month in June, they had a total deposits of $5,672. And that would leave John's deposit from work being just under five grand, about $4,992. Now, if you take those months, January, February, March, April, May, 
June. So if you take those six months, take what John deposited into the account, average it out, it averages to $5,432 per month, which if you extrapolate that out for 12 months, that would mean if he continued along that average for the rest of the year, John would have end up making about $65,000 in 2006. And that would be exactly right in the range that Ted Rutherford gave us. But in July, something changes. Another thing I want to point out, let's back up to January. Their mortgage payment at that time was $1,020. They made their payment in January. They made their payment in February. As was mentioned, they had refinanced and dropped their payment. That happened in March. So it went from $1,020 to $964. In March, they paid their house payment. In April, they paid their house payment. In May, they paid their house payment. In June, they paid their house payment. In July, August, and September, they made no house payments. They did not pay their house payment for three months leading up to their murders. That is a change. I don't know what that means or if it's going to mean anything, but it's significant to note that they appear to always have, sometimes they were late, they'd be a little bit late, but they always paid their house payment all the way back as far as we have records until July of 2006, then they stopped paying their house payment. Also, when we continue as far as the deposits, something changes drastically. So their total monthly deposits all the way January through June were between at the lowest 5,600 to the highest 8,200. But then in July, they only deposited a total of $4,231. So it's a pretty significant drop, about 1,400 less than the month before. However, I'll tell you about this when I go through the, the calendar, they did go on vacation. Remember we heard uh, when Ted Rutherford and his daughter were talking in that interview his daughter said, oh, they went to San Diego just a couple of months ago for a few days, for three days. That happened in July, and we can track that through the, the calendar there. So we'll get into that in just a minute. So that month, them having a little less money makes sense. There was three days off. It was over to the 4th of July, not the weekend, but the 4th of July was on a Tuesday, and they were gone Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So it's a little bit of time off, uh, so we expect their income to be a little bit less. But then August comes around, and in August, their total deposits were only $2,913. And John's income for that month, using the method we've been using, which remember, he usually averages about $5,400 a month, he only brought in $2,233 that month. At least that's what we see deposited into the account. Then the next month, their final month alive, they only deposited a total of $3,319, leaving John with about $2,639 in income. So in the last two months John was alive, he was depositing literally half of what he normally deposited into their bank account. They had stopped paying their mortgage for three months leading up to that. And I thought maybe this is like a slow time of year. So I went back to look at the previous month, to look at year over year. So in August of 2006, the month before they died, they only deposited into their account $2,913. In August of 2005, one year prior, they deposited $5,265, consistent with what they were doing 
than the other months. In the September statement, which again, even though they died in the middle of September, the statements end on the 18th. In September, they had only deposited $3,319. The previous December, they deposited $6,304. So they cut it in half. Year over year, they deposited half as much in the last month that they were alive. Something significant changed there. Now, I will tell you, if you go through John's receipt book, which I'll have up on the website, where he wrote his invoices out to uh, Rutherford Properties, those check out. If you go back to June, which is when the receipt book starts, you can see where he invoiced Rutherford a certain amount, and then you see that amount deposited in the account. He was depositing everything in there. And that continues for the entire, all those receipts are able to be reconciled except for about two weeks before the murders, we see a series of invoices that come in and John makes a deposit, but he doesn't deposit all of it. He's $163 short, uh, which we'll get into again when we break down these these dates, but it's significant when it happened. Uh, but so he kept $163 in cash, it looks like, as though he like went to the teller, cashed the check, took 163 in the change, and then took 417 that was left over and put it into the account. But other than that, all the money tracks. So what it looks like on paper, if Rutherford Properties was the only place that John was getting any income, then it looks like he's just not working very much those last couple of months, those last two months where his income dropped significantly. But when you listen to the interview with Ted Rutherford, it doesn't sound like that's the case at all. Again, he says that he's probably two-thirds or three-quarters of John's work and says they have so much work, they have three guys like John, but John is their number one guy. So the impression that I got, and it is just my impression, is that they had plenty of work for John to do, but John wasn't working or John was busy doing something else, which those numbers are, we have, again, over a year worth of numbers and a year's worth of John's income. We're looking for the thing that changed right before the murders. And one thing that changed right before the murders is John's income was suddenly cut in half and they hadn't paid their house payment for three months. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, to close things out today, I'm going to walk you through the last three months of John and Vicky's life based on what they were doing with their debit cards and their checkbook. 
just really to give you an idea of how they were living and for you to see if you have the same questions that I have, namely, the hell were they using all the cash for? I do want to point out that when you see in John's receipt book, there was a question that came up like, did he charge for materials? He did, but it was extremely minimal. Like he wasn't going out and buying $1,000 worth of lumber to go build something. It was like $4 for a plastic tarp or or six bucks for some plumbing pieces. There were small amounts that he was purchasing and billing. It wasn't, it wasn't anything significant. Most of the money that he billed for and that he made was for labor. And his labor rate was $29 an hour. That's what he charged Rutherford. So our statements begin on June 20th. The first one runs from June 20th through July 18th. Um, I remember as I start this that back at the beginning of the year, John and Vicky had a savings account. There was actually money in their savings account. We see where they were transferring money from the savings account into the checking account. Large amounts, $500, $600, $400. Large transfers from savings into checking. By the time these months happened, There is no more savings account. The highest balance that we ever see in their savings account for the last three months of their life was $27. So looking at the statement for the checking account from June 20th till July 18th, uh, just the overview, they started that month with $363 in their checking account. At the end of the month, they had $470. So they increased their balance by $107. I'm not giving you the pennies, just the, the dollar amount. Uh, and as I mentioned before, they had deposited a total of $4,231 that month. Now, one of the first charges we see is on June 20th, we see something called a franchise tax for $125. And it says there's a notation in there. It says for Hayward, uh, I was looking this up. The franchise tax is typically in California. I'd never heard of it before, but in California, it's a tax or a fee that you have to pay when you run a business, but only if you're an LLC or a corporation. Uh, and it looked like the minimum amount is like $750 a year. You pay it either quarterly or monthly. There's different ways to pay it. But then I also read that it, it's something that could be charged to you if you're delinquent on your taxes. So on the 20th, we have a franchise tax that was drawn out of their account for $125. But that's the only time that we see it in, in these last three months. Now, it is there a few other times previous earlier in the year. A couple times this $125 comes out. So I don't know. I don't think that John had an LLC. Uh, I've seen no no paperwork or anything to indicate that was the case. So I'm guessing it has more to do with maybe delinquent taxes. I'm not sure. Uh, but it is an even amount, $1.25, which could very easily add up to $750. So I'm, I'm not sure. And that law also could have been different in 2006 than it is now. Now, if you're a sole proprietor, which is what I believe John was, uh, that's based on what, what Rutherford said, then now you would not pay the franchise tax. Uh, but maybe in 2006 you did. But whatever it is, on the 20th of June, $125 franchise tax. Uh, and on that day, there was a deposit of $214.82. In through the ATM that appears to be Vicky's paycheck from the Friday before. Now, I'm not going to go through every single transaction. I'll try to summarize these, give you an idea what was going on. Uh, But that week, so the 23rd of June was a Friday, and we have a lot of activity on Friday. So you have a $973 deposit that was deposited with John's ATM card. 
uh, assuming that's from his work. And then a $295 deposit that was put in with Vicky's ATM card. Vicky was paid on Friday, so that's probably her paycheck. But then we have three ATM withdrawals. Vicky withdrew $100 cash, which is not normal for her, as you'll see through the rest of these couple of months. But for this month, it is. So they both deposit their checks, and then Vicky draws out $100 cash. John draws out $40 in cash. Then John goes back to the ATM and draws out another $100 in cash. So it's Friday, going into the weekend. They're getting ready to head up the hill for the weekend, is what everybody says, that they keep to themselves. And uh, John's pulled out 140 bucks cash. Vicky's pulled out $100 cash. John buys gas at USA Petro. And uh, we see a lot of small charges at Barnes & Noble from Vicky using her debit card. This one's for $9.39. So I don't know if she's going there and if she's a reader and she's just you know picking up a paperback book to have for the weekend. Or if it's like our Barnes & Noble near us here where there's a Starbucks in there. Maybe she's popping in and buying a Starbucks. I don't know. Then over the weekend, nothing. We have no activity over the weekend other than there's a check in there, and we have their canceled checks. I'll, I'll try to get that. I have to obviously redact the account number in every single page of it. Um, but there was a check that looked like it was written to a Monica for 45 bucks. The check was written on that Saturday. I don't know what that was for. Um, but Saturday and Sunday go by, nothing happens. Then Monday, June 26, John withdraws another $100 from the ATM. And then the 27th on Tuesday, another $100. So John, if we go just looking at John's ATM withdrawals, on Friday, he withdraws 100 then 40 or the other way around. Then on Monday, he withdraws another 100 And then on Tuesday, he withdraws another 100 And then on Friday, the next at the end of that week, he withdraws 300 from the ATM. So in, in a week's time, we have $640 in cash that was drawn out by John through the ATMs uh, going back to Monday. looks like you can tell, uh, you, you can always tell when Vicky's in town based on her debit card. So on that Monday where John takes a hundred dollars out of the uh, bank account through an ATM, Vicky, you, what's happening here. We learn coming up is that she's getting ready for the 4th of July vacation to San Diego. She spent 21 bucks at a place called wet seal that doesn't exist anymore, but it was a bathing suit shop. Um, here she transfers $30 into savings. She goes to Palm desert SIGs, which I'm assuming is where they buy their cigarettes for 32 bucks. Uh, goes out to a, there's a place called Pat and Oscar, the, uh, Pat and Oscar's. So it's a restaurant that Vicky goes to a few times, uh, and spends six bucks there. It's always a small amount. And she pays the singular wireless bill, their, their cell phone bill for $115.19. Now it seems like they pay a lot of their bills late. None of them are on automatic payment. Usually you'll say, and sometimes you'll see. They'll, they won't pay something for a couple months, and then they'll pay like double, triple the amount, whatever, to catch it back up. But here she pays the singular wireless bill, uh, and then nothing from Vicky on Tuesday or Wednesday. And then on Thursday, so this is Thursday, June 29th, we have uh, what I believe is from Orbit, the travel site where you can like book hotels, a charge for, and that's what it looks like happened because there's a charge there that she made for $244 on that Thursday, the 29th. But that didn't clear until the third, uh, the next week, and that's when they were actually in San Diego. So I'm guessing they paid, uh, put their credit card in for, or their debit card in for a hotel, but it didn't clear it until they were actually at the hotel. Um, and then the next day, that Friday was another busy day. So Friday, Vicky deposits $251. That's her paycheck. 
John deposits $998. Again, Vicky withdraws $100 cash. John this time withdraws $300 cash. Now, this isn't another. It's the same one I told you about a minute ago. John withdraws $300 cash on Friday. And then Vicky did some shopping. Uh, it seems like whoever they were seeing in San Diego, there must have been a small child there. because So she goes to Rite Aid, spends 20 bucks. She goes to Bath and Body and spends five bucks. Goes to KFC, spends twenty two bucks. Probably taking a bucket. Of, that's a, quite a bit for KFC. I'm assuming she's taking a bucket of chicken home for dinner. Uh, and then she goes to Jimboree and spends thirty three dollars. Which Jimboree is a clothing store for children, so small kids. So I'm assuming maybe that's for who they're visiting because they're about to go up to or down to San Diego. And regarding the, the KFC, the reason I say that too, they don't eat. You'll see they don't eat much. We don't see much money for groceries. We see where they go to the grocery store. And a little bit of fast food here and there. And the KFC seems to be a popular thing for them in the months prior to this. But not a lot of money for food. Uh, and then that Saturday, the first. so now we're talking July 1st. Uh, Vicky, again, it looks like she's buying stuff to get ready for this trip. She goes to Macy's where she works, but she spends 29 bucks there. And then there's another charge at Macy's that day for 33 bucks. She goes to Palm Desert Cigarettes again for 32 bucks, And she goes to Vons, which is the gro- a grocery store in California. Spends 36 bucks. Then on Sunday the 2nd, she's still in the Coachella Valley. Or she goes, she's, they're not in San Diego yet. They're still around home. Uh, she goes to Mervyn's, uh, which is a clothing store, spends $55. And then goes to Big Five Sporting Goods and spends $76. Now on the 3rd, this is when they go to San Diego. We know that because their charges are all in either uh, Temecula, I think I'm pronouncing that right, and San Diego. Um, but there's, uh, they go shopping at Stater brothers, the Chevron gas station, a Hunter steakhouse, a couple of charges at a best, at a best Western in San Diego. They go to McDonald's and, and again, there must be with somebody else because they're, they have a charge at McDonald's It's actually John's debit card at McDonald's in San Diego for 40 bucks, which seems like a lot of money for two people to spend at McDonald's in 2006. Maybe not so much now. Then on Thursday, the sixth, they're back in town. Vicky's debit card buys something at AutoZone for $238. And then the next day, Friday, you can tell she returned something to AutoZone because there's a credit of $70 that goes back under her account. Then it looks like uh, John deposited Vicky's paycheck of $193 that day on Friday. Then John withdraws $40 in cash out of the ATM. So typically we see like on Fridays, John loads up with cash and then he usually kind of gets more cash on Mondays and Tuesday. This time he only takes 40 bucks cash. The weekend's quiet. The next day on Monday, uh, we see their DirecTV bill comes out then, or they pay it then, 72. But they, and also, their DirecTV bill fluctuates. So I don't know if they're doing, like, some months it's 58, some months it's 72. Uh, so I don't know if they're, you know, paying for, you know, if they're, if they're getting on uh, pay-per-view things. I don't know. But on that Monday, John deposits $467. That's in his receipt book. We know where that came from. But he withdraws another $60 in cash. Then on Tuesday, the 11th, he withdraws another 160 in cash. Then on the Wednesday, we see that Vicky went to Vons and spends 48 bucks, so she's back down in the valley. My guess is the way it seems like is when she's down in the valley working, that's when she'll hit the grocery store, obviously get gas, buy cigarettes, things like that. Then again on the 13th, on Thursday, Barnes & Noble again for $7. Uh, she goes to Vons again for 12 bucks. Friday, John deposits $767, which is you know reconciled to his receipt book. That's his paycheck for that week. And then he takes out $160 in cash. 
Then on Saturday, uh, Vicky must, I think either she makes a trip down on the weekends a lot to go shopping or she works on the weekends sometimes, which wouldn't surprise me. And then picks up some things there. Cause on Saturday she goes to Rite Aid and she gets gas at a Chevron both down in the Valley at that point. Through the course of that month, John made nine ATM withdrawals for $1,060 and Vicky made $200. She made two draws, the $100 and $100 on those two Fridays. And then uh, over $1,000 was taken out in cash by John. And the last thing for this statement, before we move on to the next month, uh, I want to walk you through some checks that were written. Uh, first of all, their bills. They paid their water bill that month was $71. Their electric bill was $122. Their cell phone bill that I mentioned was $115. And DirecTV was $72. It's all they paid that month. They didn't pay any of their other bills. We don't see them paying their internet bill or their landline bill, or we'll, we'll name some of those later. As far as checks that they had written, uh, they had, other than the ones I just mentioned, uh, they had written a check for, John writes a check every month for $388 to the Riverside Child Support Agency uh, for his child support. All right, now we'll move on to the August Statement. So this one runs from July 19th through August 18th. Right off the bat, on a Wednesday, John withdraws $120 in cash from the ATM. Uh, and then we, oh, that's wrong. I was thinking that we didn't have them these months. We do. Here's John, that franchise tax of $125 comes out again on Thursday, the 20th. Uh, and on that day, looks like Vicky went into Anza. Because uh, we see she spent $32 at the Paradise Corner Cafe in Mountain Center, which is kind of up towards Anza. And I looked at that place. It's not a cafe, like a breakfast cafe. It's it's like a burger joint. I don't know if it's a bar or whatever, but they're definitely, it's definitely a burger joint. Uh, and then she went to the Anza Village Market uh, and spent $53 there, uh, which is just a family-run little grocery store in Anza. Then on that Friday, John uh, deposits $471. Bucks. I, we see that in his receipt book. And then he withdraws $80 on that Friday in cash. Saturday, Vicky goes to Vons and Claire's. Uh, then Monday, John, again, withdraws $100 in cash. And then the next day on Tuesday makes a, well, we don't know which one of them did it, but one of them withdrew $195, not through the, the only time we see this in the, in these three months, not at the ATM. Like, it's like they went to a teller and withdrew $195. The next day, John withdraws another $80 in cash, and here we see they pay their Earthlink bill, which is their internet bill, uh, and their singular wireless bill. Uh, that, that was $177 there. And at this point, they're out of money. So as of the 26th, if I went through and put things in in order, they're overdrawn. When they paid the singular bill, that overdrew them, and they paid the Earthlink bill, and that was another overdraw, and they, they get charged two overdraft fees for those on Friday at $35 a piece. But they knew they were overdrawn. Their checking balance at that point would have been minus one hundred and sixty-six dollars. Uh, but then Vicky withdraws twenty dollars in cash from savings. Now the savings account had twenty-seven dollars in it, uh, but obviously wasn't able to get money from checking. There wasn't any there, so she withdraws twenty bucks from savings uh, while she's down in town. And then on Friday, John deposits eleven hundred bucks. We see that from his uh, receipt book, uh, so that gets him back into the positive. And then on Saturday, uh, that was Friday. Then on Saturday, uh, Vicky writes two checks at Vaughn's. And, and this is the only time we see her writing checks at the grocery store. Usually she uses her debit card. 
So I, I don't know if she didn't know that John had made the deposit. But for those of you that remember back in the days when we wrote check, you used to be able to float a check for a couple of days if you knew you had a deposit coming instead of using like a debit card or cash because you'd put the money in before it cleared. That appears to be what happened on on Saturday. Vicky writes two checks totaling 120 bucks at uh, at Vons getting some groceries. Then on Sunday, it's back to normal. She goes to Barnes & Noble again, spends 18 bucks. She gets gas, goes to Vons again on Sunday the 30th. Then Monday, July 31st. Uh, Vicky deposits or John deposits Vicky's check, which is only $139. Uh, and then Vicky makes two ATM withdrawals, both for 40 bucks. And then John withdraws $200 in cash. And then there's another trip to KFC in there. And then a big purchase by Vicky at a place called vitamin world for $91. I say a big purchase cause these, they don't spend a lot of money. Most of their purchases are pretty small. It's the cash that is what's sucking their account dry. They're taking out so much cash. So again, that Monday, John withdraws $200 again. The next day, John withdraws another $60. Then on Thursday, he deposits $418, which we see that uh, again in his receipt book. We know where that came from. Uh, and there's another overdraft fee there. They had overdrawn themselves earlier in the week. So another $35 overdraft. The $418 gets them back positive. And then Friday, John takes out another $100 in cash through the ATM. Vicky goes to Vons again on Saturday. Uh, and then deposit her first check of the month. Remember, that's when all of her insurance stuff comes out. It was only 85 bucks. Uh, she deposited that on Monday, and then she took out $20 in cash. Another trip to Vons. They're, they're just, you can tell that they're not planners. Like they don't go down to, you, you know, like, like you could tell Vicky didn't make a grocery list and go down and buy a week's worth of groceries. She goes to the grocery store like five times a week. So it's like every time she's in town, she'd go and spend 20 bucks, 30 bucks, 40 bucks. 15 bucks at bonds. It's like here on Monday, August 7th, she goes to bonds. And then on Tuesday, she goes to bonds again. So it's bang, bang one day after the other. On the Wednesday, John deposits another paycheck for 372 and he withdraws 40 bucks in cash. They pay their direct TV bill, which is a hundred dollars uh, this time on the 10th. Uh, and then it looks like John is an Anza that day. Cause he, he fills up or he, he, spends $35 with his debit card at the circle K in Anza on uh, Friday. There's a deposit of $75. Not sure where that came. It must be Vicky's next check. Seems like she wasn't making very much right then. Uh, and John withdrew $40 and a couple of fast food purchased there over the weekend. On uh, the following Tuesday, uh, John deposits 200 or Vicky deposits 220 bucks. It's an even number. Probably not her paycheck. I don't know where that came from, but she deposits $220. Uh, and then John goes to the ATM and takes 60 of it back out. Uh, another trip to Barnes & Noble the next day. Another trip to Vons the next day. Uh, and then on the Friday, there's a $30 deposit that John made. Again, don't know where these this money is coming from, but they're, they're, they're even numbers. They're not, it doesn't seem like it's a paycheck. And they're not accounted for by pay stubs or John's receipt book, that 220 or the 30. Um, so John deposits $30 through the ATM and then withdraws 20 through the ATM. Uh, and that is the end of the August statement. We're almost done. Hope some of you are find this interesting. I'm going to scan these. If you can read my chicken scratch, I'll scan these into the website so you can see what I'm looking at. If you're a visual person like me, I had a, I had to like write a calendar and put them on a calendar for it to make any sense to me. So I'll put them up there in case anybody else is the same. 
All right. Uh, now we're into the last month of their lives. Again, this this statement ends on September 18th. John and Vicky were murdered on the 17th uh, on a Sunday. Uh, and again, this third month in a row, they never made a mortgage payment. They started the month with 313 bucks in their account, ended it with $484. They only deposited $3,319 throughout the course of this month. And there's no vacations or anything. Well, there's Vicky's vacation. They didn't go anywhere, I should say, during this month. So we have uh, anything significant. We just have, you know, trip to Carl's Jr. John bought something from cellphoneshop.net, which is a place you used to be able to buy accessories for cell phones, like cases and charging cords and stuff like that. Uh, and then on a Saturday, Vicky deposits 220 bucks and 220 and 98 cents, which I think is her paycheck. And then she withdraws $40 in cash. And then she spends $47 at Vons with her debit card. Uh, then on, and, and this is where we've got some money. I don't know where it comes from. So there's a $204 deposit on the 20th or excuse me, Monday, the 21st, not sure where that came from. Then on the 22nd, on the Tuesday, we see a charge says debit adjustment, $211 and 89 cents. And I'm not sure what that's for. I haven't seen another, like a bounce check, anything in that amount, but we have debit adjustment, $211.89, and then legal processing fee of $100 that happened both on that Tuesday, the 22nd. Uh, next day, Vicky withdraws $40 from ATM, and then Vicky, both same day, then Vicky withdraws $200 from the ATM. Uh, and then through the ATM also, she transfers $7.99 from checking to savings. And the savings at that point had $3 in it before she did that. Uh, and then on Friday is that when I mentioned earlier where John deposits $417, but that's not all of his check. It's about $163 short. And so this is where leading up to their deaths, we do see a pattern emerge with John. You see it a little bit in the months leading up to this, where on Fridays, he would withdraw a pretty significant amount of cash. And those previous months, he would withdraw a bunch on Friday and then more on Monday and then more on Tuesday. So here we don't have an ATM withdrawal on the 25th, but from his receipt book, we know that he kept $163 in cash and deposited 417, which they needed because they were about ready to start bouncing checks again at that point. On Sunday, Vicky deposits 265.37 into her account. That was her paycheck. And then, you know, she's at the Patton Oscars again for six bucks, bonds for nine bucks, paid their internet bill, and then and then Vicky withdraws $40. On Monday, John withdraws 80 bucks, and then nothing significant, just buy some gas. Uh, but on Thursday, John withdraws $40 in cash. And then, so we're, we're getting up to the last couple of weeks of their life now. John withdraws $40 in cash on Thursday, and then on Friday, withdraws 40 again, and then 80 So that's $160. So he kept $163 in cash on the previous Friday, and then between Thursday and Friday the next week, he keeps a hundred. He withdraws a hundred and sixty dollars in cash on a Friday. Um, he also deposited eight hundred and nineteen dollars, and that was one of his paychecks that he put into there on that same day. Then on that Saturday, uh, looks like v Vicky with her card uh, paid the Verizon landline bill by phone uh, for one hundred and fifty-two dollars, and it looks like they had not paid that bill for quite a while. So I'm guessing that was a pay the bill now or we're shutting your phone off because 152 bucks for a landline is a lot and they hadn't paid it for a while. 
And then starts Vicky's vacation. According to her co-workers, she was on vacation for two weeks leading up to the murder. So that takes us from Sunday, September 3rd, all the way up to Sunday, September 17th when she was killed. During that week, we don't see that first week, the week of the third, we don't see any activity from Vicky at all with her debit card or anything. It seems like she was just at home. Uh, John deposits 218 bucks on Tuesday, then withdraws 60. He withdraws 40 more the next day. On Friday, he deposits 380, which is, and this is where like he's not making much now. He deposits 380 bucks from work and then withdraws 200 of that from the ATM. So again, here we are on a Friday. John takes out $200 in cash, and he'd already taken out $100 in cash a couple of days before that. Nothing over the weekend. The next thing we see is on Tuesday, the 11th or the 12th of September, where John takes out another $120 in cash. Then the next day, on the 13th, on Wednesday, he takes out another $140 in cash. And then two days later on Friday, he takes another 60 in cash and then another 120 in cash. So the last, we look at the last week leading up to the weekend where John and Vicky were murdered, starting with Tuesday, John withdrew 120, 140, 120, and 60. So that's $440 in cash that he withdrew over the four days. The last four days he was down in the valley before he was murdered, $440 in cash. That's the most we've seen him withdraw, right, leading up to a weekend like that. There's something different. Again, it's not hugely different because he's always taking out a bunch of cash, particularly on the weekends, but that was a lot, 120, 140, 120, and 60, and he deposited 660, which was his last check you heard in the interview with Ted Rutherford, uh, his daughter, looking through the file saying that, yes, he had that they had wrote him his last check on the 15th, and they could see that it cleared on the 15th. That check is in his receipt book. It was for $661.84. And he did, in fact, deposit that into the ATM that day and then withdrew $180. And that is the last transaction before John and Vicki and Becky were murdered. All right. So as I said, this is obviously not a scripted episode, so I don't know how interesting all of you would find all of that. But uh, that's the information. I'm going to put the documents up on the website. But it certainly seems, I guess my nutshell for all of this to me is I'm looking for something that changed and I think that we're seeing something has changed. I don't know what it is yet. This right here is a big part of the reason I'm heading down to or heading out to California next week is to try to track down some people to get an idea of what was going on. What was the cash being used for? For those of you that are reside in or, or, or have ever been to the Coachella Valley, you know, there are casinos all over the place there. Uh, down in the valley, I can think of six casinos, if I'm counting correctly, that I remember seeing when I was down there um, the last time. So gambling's always a possibility. However, we don't have any indication that that's what was going on. People have talked about online gambling. That's possible. I guess you could take that cash and then and then go, I guess, through Western Union or whatever. You could deposit money into online gambling sites, so that's possible. Drug use, I don't think, can be ruled out. Um, we had mentioned that there were no drugs found in John's system in the autopsy, but I've done more research on that, and it does appear that burning a body will cause those tests to show negative, even if there is something in there, or it can. So we don't know what to rule out. All I know is that John was pulling out a lot of cash, 
and they were spending every dime they made. He either wasn't working much in that life. He was working less in that last month of his life than he had ever worked anywhere we have records. Or if he was doing jobs other than for Rutherford's, he wasn't depositing the money into the account. But something definitely changed. It's not like we have consistent average amounts, normal work, normal income, normal spending patterns, and boom, they're dead. We don't have that at all. We have a couple that made decent money, paid their bills, seems to be a little bit, they seem to be a little bit irresponsible with their money, but they were keeping up on things. Then all of a sudden they stopped paying their mortgage. John's making half as much as he normally does. His his withdrawals at the ATM are going up. He's taking out hundreds of dollars when they're broke. He's taking out hundreds of dollars in cash when they haven't paid their mortgage for three months. We don't know where that was going. And the one thing they did do, one check that I didn't mention, is they did write in that last month, they were cleared in that last month, a check for $294.64 to Midland Mortgage Company. That is who their mortgage is through, but in the memo on that check, it says it is an escrow payment. Escrow, for those, I'm sure most of you know this, but your escrow is the amount the bank holds on to pay your your property taxes and your homeowner's insurance out of escrow. So even though they hadn't paid their house payment for months, they did send in a check to catch up their escrow, which is what would pay for insurance and taxes. But it also says that check, if I'm reading it correctly, it says NSF stamped across it, which I believe is non-sufficient funds. So I don't even know if that went through. It's also possible that has something to do with the refinance. Uh, Maybe they were balancing something else out. I don't know, but I could tell you this. Something was going on. Something changed. Their income was less. Their cash withdrawals were, were more. They weren't paying their bills. Something was going on. I'm really excited to hear you guys and your questions and your thoughts and theories in this week's Friday follow-up. We'll talk to you then. Bye. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Edited by Kelly Barron's Brink and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our fonts across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design, and you can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Kay Woodyomnick, Ginger Fiola, Erica Cantor, Danielle Rohr, Jennifer Ford, Courtney Wimberly, and Melissa Cardenas. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in several ways. To financially support the show, the best thing you can do is just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You'll not only be supporting the show, but you'll get something in return. On Patreon, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes bonus video content every week. Then other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also do us a huge favor by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the brands that sponsor this program. 
If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page on Facebook. For all you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I can be found personally on all forms of social media at BobRuffTruth. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.